Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. We have an election coming up April 4th in which Paul Vallis and Brandon Johnson are going to vie to be the next mayor of the city of Chicago. We are joined right now with one of those candidates, Mr. Paul Vallis. Paul, how are you? Are you exhausted? <laughs> you know, I, I've actually been uh, campaigning for probably about 300 plus days. So am I exhausted? Not really. Uh, I think I'm on an adrenaline rush. And, you know, when you... Uh, when you spend a lot of time in the community, sometimes you can draw from from people. I mean, they there's mm-hmm. an energy I really believe this. So, no, I'm feeling good. I'm feeling good. I'm making sure that I get enough rest at night, and then I'm ready to go. Well, you know, I was talking to your aide, Sally, earlier, and I told her, I said, you know, uh, I do feel that I have to confront you on the fact that you didn't actually take the polar plunge. You what? You stood there with towels for people when they got out. I mean, come on. I did. I'm a watcher. I used to be a. <laughs> I'm a watcher now. Hey, listen. You know, I don't want to be. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's, I I can't afford. I can't afford to get sick or detracted. But but you know, I've done. <laughs> Even when I did the polar plunge, I have to admit now on the radio that I wore a wetsuit. So even <laughs> in those days when I was doing the polar plunge every year, I had that wetsuit on. So, you know, well, is that a real, yeah. Is, are you really I've that? never even, I've never even been out to cheer people on because you know what? It's cold. And when it's cold, I stay in my house like a normal, rational person. Um, but, you know, I understand, I understand people do it and it's, uh, it, it gets a lot of attention for some very worthwhile causes. Okay. Back to the mayor's yeah, race. Yeah. I think, yeah, I think they raised, I think they raised about two and a half million dollars and there were actually people, uh, doing the polar plunge that were like in their 80s. So it's, it, oh my God. It's incredible. Yeah. It I, is incredible. Anyway. Um, ever since, uh, we had, um, the election, I've been reading over and over again that the person who's going to win this is the person who can move to the middle, who can capture the middle of the electorate. Do you think that's true? And if so, how are you going to capture the people in the middle? Look, you know, I think the person who's going to win is, is going to be the person who can capture support throughout the city. And, you know, I've never thought of, about the middle or the right or the left. I mean, I've been pushing issues that I, I think are relevant to everyone. Look, who doesn't want to live in safe and secure neighborhoods uh, where you have beat cops and real community policing, but but community policing with accountability? Uh, who doesn't want to have quality school choices uh, everywhere in the city, regardless of your income or regardless of your zip code? And who doesn't want to live in a city where the budget, uh, uh, you know, the budget documents are actually investment vehicles and you know, and we're, you know, you're not in a city that constantly is increasing your property taxes, fees, and fines. So, you know, at the end of the day, I haven't thought about, all I've thought about is the issues. And you can see from the forums I participated in, or for that matter, my speech uh, on on election night, I've continued with that theme, focusing on the core issues. Paul, I just so lost I Paul Vallis. They're having technical difficulties. Yeah. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. 
I'm speaking with mayoral candidate Paul Vellis. Uh, Paul, I'm sorry, we're having some real gremlins back at the studio today. But to get us back where we were before, I asked our listeners uh, this morning to text in questions. And one of them texted in a question about uh, the police department. And it said, you know, basically we're short all these officers. Um, it's going to cost a lot of money to train new officers and deploy them. Uh, they said you, meaning you, Paul, have also proposed additional funding for an improved and modernized police department with taxes as high as they already are. How do you propose to fund these new police expenditures? Well, let me point out that right now we're not filling the police vacancies. I think we're down about 1,100 vacancies, and that's probably costing us $100 million in overtime a year. When I was city budget director, we spent $35 million in police overtime. Now they're spending, I don't know, $175 million more on overtime. And secondly, we're spending $100 million on privatized police on the CTA, and half the riders on the CTA who are polled by WBZ feel that the CTA is not safe. These, these well, actually, I got another question about that, too. So let's also talk about the safety of public transportation. Go ahead, but finish your thought. Yeah, uh, yeah. and then thirdly, there clearly is some reprogramming and reprioritizing that can be done in the police department itself. You know, it is top-heavy. You know, there clearly you need to push the police officers down to the local beach. So it's not really a funding issue. You know, I don't think we need to increase funding for police. We just need to spend the money effectively. And we need to, to you know, gut that $100 million we're spending on privatized uh, police who cannot arrest and cannot enforce the law. Uh, you know, and they're like minimum wage. And, and we can hire another 300 police officers. So basically, it's not a funding issue. But let me tell you what would happen really quickly. Uh, and I'll tell you about the CTA and uh, and the the um, if once we get uh, an entire new leadership team in the police department, once we return them to a normal work schedule, once we push the officers down to the local beach, so if people have a police car to respond to a 911 call in minutes rather than hours. Once we do those things, I- I'm absolutely convinced that we're not going to slow the exodus of officers, giving us a chance to catch up. But there are hundreds and hundreds of officers who have transferred to other police departments or have retired who will return, who will return. So I'm absolutely convinced that we can swell the ranks with veteran officers returning so that we, and then by pushing the officers down to the local beach, because only 53% of the officers in the police department currently are actually assigned to the local districts. I'm absolutely concerned. I'm actually convinced that we can not only restore beat integrity where you have a police guard covering that local beat, but we can actually put enough officers on the CTA platforms and at the CTA stations so that the CTA, uh, traveling the CTA, riding the CTA is as safe as going to the airport. Okay. Um, we're getting, I'm also getting a lot of texting questions about different aspects of education. Uh, they kind of boil down, you know, there's, uh, there's a voucher system, there's school choice, there's charter schools versus, uh, versus non-charter schools, religious schools versus secular mm-hmm. schools. Um, here's just one question. Why should I subsidize private religious schools which practice a specific religion when our First Amendment establishes the separation of church and state? That's one of the arguments against, you know, voucher, a voucher system. Right. Look, let me tell you where I'm at uh, across the gamut. 
look, there's no substitution for a strategy that aggressive, aggressively addresses the issue of quality public education, publicly funded schools. And I've talked about pushing the money down to the local school district level and restoring the concept of community schools where these schools are open on the weekends, on the holidays, through the dinner hour, just as they were when Gary Chico and I were running the schools over the summer, and then bringing community-based organizations, faith-based organizations, the park district programs to those schools so that after school hours, there are programs, support programs, recreational work-study programs for the young people so we can keep them engaged, we can provide them with help and keep them safe and secure. Only about 60% of the money, of the $30,000 that they're spending per child actually finds its way into the classroom. And I want to change that. That's number one. Number two, we have enough charters. We have 126 charters. You know, it's not a question of adding more charters. And let me point out that I chartered 15 schools. You know, those additional charters were done uh, during, during the Ernie Duncan administration. So a lot of people, you know, try to. Well, that, yeah, that's the rap on you that you're Mr. Charter school. Yeah, well, you know, 15 charters out of 558 schools is not a lot of charges. Let me point out that a number of those schools were actually alternative schools for students who have been expelled, students who had violated the zero tolerance policy. In fact, Jack Weiss and the Alternative Schools Network, they're uh, the Youth Connection Charter Schools that graduates 1,200 students a year. Uh, that That was a school system. That was a school program that we funded and that we brought into the charter program. And, and those schools had existed in the districts for years. So these, they educate the kids who have been kicked out or, or the kids who have been released from incarceration and are too old to return. And, you know, I also support... The I'm confused, program. Paul, because I hear the argument made that charter schools exist for the opposite reason, that they can kick out... Uh, the students who don't fit, they can kick out the troublemakers and that those kids have to go back to regular public schools. Um, I, the argument I'm always hearing is that it's sort of a way to send all the troublemakers or the kids who don't fit back to uh, CPS. And you're saying, well, I, I didn't know this, there are charter schools that, that are specifically created to deal with students with problems? Yes, absolutely. In fact, the biggest number of charters opened and uh, during my tenure was actually the Youth Connection Charter Schools. Jack Weiss, Google it. The Youth Connection Charter Schools, Jack Weiss, the Alternative Schools Network, Google it. And those schools had already existed in the community. We just brought them into the network and got them state funding. It actually helped increase the number of students we had, which gave us more a state aid. So at the end of the day, you know, I, I, you know, I actually opened more alternative schools for overage, underachieving students who have been kicked out or have been incarcerated who are never going to return to traditional high schools. It, it was, it's only later after my departure during when the you know when the uh, uh, the Duncan administration there started doing Renaissance 2010 and those programs. So you know, some people uh, confuse me obviously with uh, with uh, the other superintendent. Who followed, and the other superintendents who followed me. So that's just a fact. Uh, that's just a fact of life. But but I do want to point out that we actually opened more traditional schools than we did charter schools. We built thirty school new schools in, in during our tenure in the Chicago public schools. In addition to building forty eight 
48 uh, ad- uh, additions, uh, additions to existing buildings. And if you go to my website, you will. we have an interactive map that shows the 78 school buildings that we built all over the city. And you'll see that, the, and these are public school buildings, and you'll see that the majority of those public school buildings are on the south and west sides. Um, well, this is a topic that I know you've answered in every forum, but my listeners still want you to talk more about it. I have been, um, I've been reading Tracy Kidder's book, Rough Sleepers, about, uh, us, the Boston area home unhoused population and one doctor who worked with them for decades. I mean, this is clearly the problem of those without housing and the problem of affordable housing. This is a problem that has been with us for a very long time, and yet people are looking to you and saying, how are you going to, if not fix it, how are you at least going to make it better? Well, this is how you make it, uh, it better, and this is, a, this is an issue that we've discussed in the past, particularly when I was co-hosting prior to announcing. Uh, look, uh, we have thousands and thousands of CHA units that are vacant, because nobody's overseeing or monitoring the CHA. They operate. I mean, that's why they're turning over their property to, you know, to, you know, to, uh, you know, to uh, developers. I mean, at the end of the day, the CHA has thousands and thousands of units that could be occupied by individuals who are homeless, by returning citizens who are released from incarceration in need of housing, or for that matter, by uh, immigrants that are coming in. Uh, you know, secondly, there are 15,000 of residential units that are vacant and unoccupied because they're in tax courts, uh, tax sales, whatever. You know, the city through eminent domain or through, uh, or through land purchase is going and purchase those facilities and turn them over to community-based organizations so that they're providing housing not only for the homeless, but they're providing so every community has housing for the homeless, housing for returning citizens, those are individuals who have been incarcerated. Uh, or for that matter, uh, what about domestic shelters? There's only 150 beds that the city has available on any given night for individuals who have been the victims of domestic violence, yet they get hundreds and hundreds of domestic violence calls a night. So those, are, so there is housing stock that people can take advantage of now. But I think what the city needs to do, particularly with individuals who are riding the trains or at the airports or, or, or basically set up camps under the Vidocs, is the city needs to really assemble a task force that includes social services, and they need to go out there and armed with potential uh, of, of places where individuals can be relocated uh, to, as well as uh, prepared to evaluate and assess why the people are homeless in the first place, because there's a lot of different reasons that people Mm -hmm. are homeless or become homeless. And I think they really need to go from site to site and assess and evaluate and try to connect uh, those individuals, not only with uh, shelters, places where they can go, where they'll be safe and secure, but also with the social services and supports needed to keep them from becoming homeless again. You know, in New York City, Eric Adams, the mayor there, has gotten a lot of uh, pushback and negative publicity because he... Uh, told the police officers there that if there is an unhoused person and they appear to be suffering from a mental illness, that unless the person agrees voluntarily to go to a clinic or go to a shelter, that they can, and not only can, but that they should 
forcibly remove them and take them to a mental health treatment center where they will be involuntary committed for a certain amount of time. What do you you think of what Eric Adams is doing there? You know, I think that's careless. I think that's a mistake. Look, my youngest son, um, who, as you know, uh, uh, you know, died of the uh, physical impact of long-term drug addictions. And he, from time to time, we lost him in the community. And from time to time, we had a search for him. And at time, from time to time, he was homeless. And, and you know, we were a family with that, that had some resources to help and assist them. And the last thing you want to do is to have the police play that role, nor would the police want to play that role. I've been a strong advocate for reopening not only the community-based mental health centers, but also making sure that every area that the police that a uh, that the police district serve has a community health center that can do in calls and out calls, as well as opening opening opioid and drug addiction centers and crisis counseling centers. So when the calls are made, you are sending out social service providers. You're sending out mental health experts to come in to sit down. Uh, to uh, deal with that person in need and, and, and to try to encourage and to help uh, get them the, the treatment they need, need as well as the shelter that they need. So I think sending the police out there or basically uh, mandating that the police do that, I think it's a big mistake. The police must not be the only responders, you know, and uh, all too often the police are the only responders. It's not a job that they're trained for. And I'm not suggesting that the police, uh, that we shouldn't have redundant training. We all should have continual training, but it's not the primary function of the police. And I think the police are being misused when they're mandated to do that. I think we need to make sure that every police district is connected with local social service providers that can be called in to respond to the 911 calls and the emergency calls that relate to issues other than violent crime or for that matter, because all too often the 911 calls, uh, you know, are, are just not about, uh, you know, criminal acts, but sometimes, you know, 911 becomes, you know, a, an avenue for, you know, for, for calling for any emergency. So I think we need to provide the social service supports that police well, district commanders need. There is at least one ward in the city of Chicago that has been trying the experiment of for mental health crises instead of sending out a police car, sending out a mental health team to deal with that. I have not seen an update on how that's going. Maybe you've got more current information. Is that a program that you would like to see expanded? Yeah, absolutely. And there's no reason why you can't scale, you can't scale it. Look, you know, I think every... I believe that every police district, and I'm not talking about in the districts, I'm talking about in the areas that the districts serve, should have a, a mental health, community-based and operated mental health center that does in-calls and out-calls and has the ability to respond to calls. You know, so, you know, so when you have a police district commander, you not only have, uh, you have crisis intervention services, you have opioid drug addiction, in-call and out-call services, because, you know, look at all the cases of drug overdoses or individuals uh, who are homeless who have chronic drug addictions and things like that. I mean, do you want, you want the police dealing with that or do you want social services dealing with that? And that's the same thing with the mental health call. You need to have the social service infrastructure in place. So, yes, uh, those type of calls are being responded to by a, 
by mental health workers who can go to that site and can respond to that call as the police are all too often uh, required to do. And so I would be supportive of that. And for people to say, well, where's the money going to come from that? I mean, you know, I've always felt that you should dedicate the cannabis revenue, the, uh, the gaming revenue. If you legalize video poker revenue, that money could clearly be used to restore community-based social services. Also, if you're billing properly, if you're billing, if you're billing both the state and the federal government, Medicaid, Medicare, insurance companies, a lot of the costs of providing those services can be provided for if you're doing what needs to be done in terms of the documentation and your billing. When I ran the Chicago Public Schools with Gary Chico, we, we, would, we would secure $70, $80 million a year in Medicaid reimbursements because we documented the, the Medicaid-related health care services that we were providing to our students. So the city is squandering millions, tens of, tens of millions of dollars by not bill, having an effective way of billing for services. And I, that's something that I would do to fund these social services. You've gotten uh, a lot of grief because of your past social media, uh, things that were controversial, that were apparently liked by you or um, retweeted by you. You've talked about this before, but what what are you going to do to fix that, and what are you going to do with your social media going forward? Well, look, you know, I, you know, I believe we've already fixed that. Those were not our likes. We were not, and, the, and people from my campaign were not liking uh, those things. Clearly, you know, you have to make sure, you've got to make sure that, that you're protecting your social media, you're protecting who has access to your social media. You know, I, you know, I as a rule, don't respond to anything. You know, if I was, you know, I have a tendency if I look at how people are responding uh, to uh, some of my social media posts, I only look at the critics and I'll dwell over it for for like hours, if not days. So my approach is is not to like or unlike things at all and just basically stay away. I'm too busy. I'm, I'm, I'm too focused. So, you know, look, every campaign needs to be able to secure their social media. So people are not accessing it. People don't have access who shouldn't have access to it. So, you know, we've explained what we've done to, to take the proper precautions and to, to keep something like that from happening again. And, you know, we just need, uh, you know, we need to make sure that we've got the right safeguards in place. John Catanzaro was just reelected head of the FOP. What's your relationship going to be like with him when you're mayor? Well, I've got to, you know, I'm going to have to negotiate with uh, unions, whether it's Local 2, whether it's John Zara, whether it's Stacey Davis-Gates. And if you've watched the debates that we've had publicly, uh, um, you know, I have uh, I have hardly ever uh, taken a shot at my opponents because I realized that whether it's Cam Buckner or anyone else on that stage, or for that matter, Brandon Johnson, these are individuals that I'm going to have to deal with, uh, particularly with uh, Brandon at the teachers' union. You know, when I get elected mayor. So, you know, I, I don't get to select the union presidents that I have to negotiate with. I'm, you know, I'm stuck with them. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I think my, my ability to negotiate uh, collective bargaining agreements with teacher unions in four and the largest school districts in four different states. Uh, incidentally, this is not the first police contract that I've negotiated. I've negotiated the police and firefighter contracts and the contracts with all the other unions when I was city budget director. I mean, you've got to deal with the union leadership. 
my approach, though, is to communicate directly to the rank and file. Because when I do that, and I'm communicating directly with the rank and file, and I'm, I'm accessible to the rank and file, and they understand where I'm coming from, then I can speak to the rank and file independent of their leadership. And that's why I've always been able to, to, to uh, negotiate contracts and sell contracts that were responsible. Look, you know this as well as I do, because you've asked me this question so many times. I was able to you know, negotiate an eight-year collective bargaining agreement with the, t- with the uh, police department. And remember, the police had not had a contract in four years that kept 2,000 police officers from retiring because they were not going to wait a fifth year for that contract in their pay raise. I also included all the accountability provisions that were being demanded and that had been included in the sergeant's contract. So I was able to achieve what people thought was impossible. And of course, I participated in the negotiations without accepting any compensation uh, from the union and because I was doing this for, for the rank-and-file police. Uh, you know, I was trying to get them a contract, and I was trying to get the long-demanded accountability provisions put into the contract, which I successfully did. And, of course, that contract was passed, and that contract was much celebrated. So, you know, I, I, I like to think that I, I really contributed not only to uh, preventing a huge number of police from exiting that would have only made our problems much more complicated, but for also ensuring that you had the right accountability provisions that were being demanded. I will be seeing you this Saturday when you are at the, uh, when you're at the mayoral forum at the Methodist church downtown. Um, Cheryl Corey and I are going to be co-moderating that debate. Um, Anybody who would like tickets, uh, you can uh, go online and they are free, but you have to you have to register. And we will be taking questions from the audience. Um, Paul, I look forward to seeing you this Saturday. And I really want to thank you for taking time out of what I know is a ridiculously busy schedule to spend time with us here at CPT today. Thank you for that. Joan, it's always a pleasure to be on with you and uh And I just want to thank you for giving me the time. And I'll see you Saturday. See you Saturday. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with more right after this.